Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is really kind of hard to remember a day of such extraordinary consequence in politics as today in Georgia. Uh, We not only, of course, have runoff elections today, which will fix once and for all the candidates in the general election uh, races, Um, but of course, uh, Georgia will be center stage in the uh, congressional hearings, the January 6th committee hearings in Washington today. it, you know, I think we've all known for a long time that Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling of the Secretary of State's office would be called to testify, and we can only assume that uh, Raffensperger will recount that infamous phone call in which Donald Trump asked him to find 11,000-plus votes. Um, but we're also going to hear from um, Wandrea Moss, who uh, is a Fulton County election worker who was targeted by Rudolph Giuliani, Uh, who claimed to have video, a smoking gun showing that she was trying to steal the election. Of course, it was a fraud. She had to go into hiding. Uh, And we're going to talk about her story in a little while and why what what she will add today, I think, is a human element, a really personal human element to uh, how the fake election conspiracy theories have affected some people uh, throughout Uh, the entire effort by Trump to overturn the 2020 election. So we got all that and more to talk about. Chris Carr testifies today in Fonnie Willis's special grand jury looking at uh, efforts to overturn the election. So uh, let's get right to the panel and begin the conversation. Uh, It's Tuesday. Tamar Hallerman, AJC senior reporter, is uh, with us today. Uh, Tamar, can you imagine, can you think of a day that had quite this significance for Georgia politics? I was trying to think of one and maybe then other than like a general election day, not really. And it's amazing, you know, it's up in D.C. in addition to down here on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is why we're also glad that we have your colleague, Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter uh, for the AJC uh, with us. Tia, you've been obviously following the January 6th committee hearings, but today's your biggest day yet, right? Yes, you know, and it's interesting because we thought, you know, at the in the first hearing there was that Capitol Police officer who's from Atlanta and her testimony was so moving and we were like, Wow, that's really putting Georgia at the center and then the third hearing we I think the second hearing we heard from B J Pack and we were like, Here mm-hmm. comes the US attorney, um, another Georgia witness and now Three of the four witnesses at today's hearing are going to all be, you know, from Georgia talking about that pressure campaign in Georgia. And we're just finding out more and more that, you know, we knew how intensely former President Trump and his allies were trying to overturn the election result in Georgia. But what's coming out is that their attention was there was extra attention on Georgia that other states did not get. And we're really learning that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's going to be fascinating to watch this afternoon. By the way, the hearing starts at one o'clock this afternoon and uh, GPB will be carrying at all of our platforms, radio, TV, uh, web. So you'll be able to find it if you want to join us as we uh, uh, pick up the PBS and NPR coverage. Um, Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of pre-law at Morehouse College, is back with us. Adrian, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you? And good morning. I'm great. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, Adam Van Brimmer is back as well, the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Uh, Adam, uh, this is a big day in politics uh, for you as well. You can't be an editorial page editor without paying close attention to the political landscape, not just in Savannah, but across the state. Yes, absolutely. A runoff day is 
I guess it's not as big a deal as primary day from a volume standpoint, but we're going to see, we're going to, we're going to learn a lot about who's going to be on the November ballot today, uh, whether it's uh, statewide Democrats or, or here in, in coastal Georgia, who is going to run for U.S. House on the Democratic side. So it's a very exciting day, even before you start talking about what's going on on Capitol Hill. So uh, let's start by talking about the election tomorrow, and then we'll spend, <clears throat> excuse me, a considerable amount of time talking about the witnesses that are going to testify in Washington later today. Um, why don't we start with the 6th District Republican runoff, because that's one of the races where um, Donald Trump has uh, made an endorsement. He's endorsing Jake Evans, the son of uh, Randy Evans, longtime uh, Republican attorney, Representative Newt Gingrich had a, has had a big role in uh, Trump-era politics. He was an amb- appointed as an ambassador by Donald Trump. And uh, uh, Jake Evans um, is uh, running, of course, against Rich McCormick, who ran last time over in the 7th District and came rel- rel- rather close to beating uh, Carolyn Bordeaux uh, when the 7th District was more competitive. So uh, tell us a little bit about what— it means that Trump has endorsed Evans in this race. I mean, it's significant. Like you said, you know, Jake Evans is the son of a longtime Republican power player, somebody who is close to Donald Trump, served as his ambassador to Luxembourg. So that's certainly notable. But I also would not underestimate Richard McCormick. He has, you know, he became so well known after his uh, near miss in the seventh district last year. And remember that this is a newly redrawn district. Um, Lucy McBath managed to flip the 6th uh, district in, in 2018. It, it was one of the swingiest districts in Georgia um, and became kind of a light blue by the end. But the legislature redrew it. It's now safely Republican. So it's a much different turf than what it was two years ago. So it's going to be really interesting to see who voters pick. Um, as Tia has written about extensively, there's plenty of debates between the two candidates about who's the true conservative, who's kind of a closet rhino, as they like to kind of accuse each other of being Republican in name only. I know Rich McCormick, for example, has um, you know gotten money and, and perhaps an endorsement from the American Medical Association. He's a doctor. And so uh, some people say that that means you're insufficiently conservative. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where the voters fall. Last night, there was a, uh, a short telephone rally that Donald Trump held for, for Jake Evans. And it'll be an interesting test of, of Trump's clout in that newly redrawn district if Jake wins. T.A.? Sorry about that. You? I was on mute. I was on mute. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that... Rich McCormick has a lot of money behind him. You know, he's endorsed by the Club for Growth, which is a conservative political committee, and they spend a lot of money. I know voters in that district see the money that's being spent, um, particularly for Rich McCormick. So you can consider him the front runner. Um, and it'll be really interesting if if Jake Evans isn't able to pull through um, and then also in the 10th district, we know the Trump endorsed candidate Vernon Jones is also not considered the front runner at this point. So uh, we've got two Trump candidates we'll be watching closely to see if they're able to kind of um, outrun some guys with bigger name recognition. So, Adam, I think what Tia just said is really important. Um, you know, this is an opportunity, I suppose, for Trump to have something of a comeback in Georgia. He got hammered in the primary elections when uh, Brian Kemp won uh, such an overwhelming victory over uh, uh, David Perdue, Trump's uh, candidate in that race, where Brad Raffensperger uh, beat Jody Heiss. I mean, if, if you were going to just give odds on whether Trump-endorsed candidates today are likely to win or not, based on the primary results, you'd have to say doubtful, yes? Yeah, it's very, very long odds. I mean, certainly, I, you know, the, I think Jake Best and Vernon Jones are two different situations. Um, I, I know just from my colleagues in, in Athens, of course, they're one of our sister papers, and, and they've been following the the Vernon Jones race, that it's an uphill climb for him. As you've noted on this show, it, it's gotten kind of ugly with some of the mailers and some of the other things going on in that district. But, yeah, Trump really, 
the primary showed that that his hold on the Republican Party is not quite what it might be in other parts of the country. I've been trying to kind of put my finger on why that is. I spent some time in Ohio last week, and of course, there's a lot of talk about J.D. Vance, and uh, it's it's kind of amazing as to uh, the the rejection that Georgia did do, and I think it speaks to what Brian Kemp and 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 his and his legislature, for lack of a better word, have been able to accomplish in terms of of the economy, probably more than anything else. Adrian. I find that the familial connection with uh, Jake Evans makes a lot of sense, but I mean, I've just seen him get beat up. You know, I got deep into that law review article that they're using to call him woke and make some really dicey um, advertisements about. So I was surprised to find that um, he had gotten the Trump endorsement. And I think both he and Vernon Jones both, um, I'll be uh, surprised uh, if they're able to pull it out. It's worth noting, though, that that we're talking about a a low turnout runoff in the middle Mm -hmm. of summer when a ton of people are tuned out, they're going on vacation, they don't want to think about politics yet. You know, primaries themselves really tend to attract the party faithful. Well, primary runoffs, only the, the faithful of the faithful. So I think this is a moment where perhaps Trump's endorsement might really make a difference among these kind of party activists and sort of red meat conservatives who are the most likely to come out. Um, I guess we'll wait and see tomorrow if that's the case. Uh, but, but you know, this could be a situation where a couple hundred or a couple thousand votes could really change the trajectory of this. So whoever has that, that momentum, it could make a big difference. I, I'm glad you said that because I think that's absolutely right. I mean, turnout is expected to be very, very uh, low. So in a race like that, anything at all uh, can certainly happen. Uh, so we'll watch uh, the six. I, 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 Tia, correct me if you think I'm wrong. In some ways, the sixth is a better um, uh, uh, race to think about in terms of Trump's clout. Vernon Jones has so many negatives attached to his name. Uh, it, it, and, you know, a former Democrat, a guy who's been involved in personal scandal and controversy for so long. Um, I mean, if Trump can get Vernon Jones over the finish line in the 10th, uh, that's really saying something. At least Jake Evans uh, is a much more kind of straightforward Republican candidate. Right. I agree that, you know, Jake Evans doesn't have the baggage Vernon Jones has. He also, for better or for worse, doesn't have the name recognition Vernon Jones has. So, Yes, he doesn't have the negatives weighing him down. He doesn't have the even just separating all the political negatives Vernon Jones has. He just has like um the just the basic logistics of not really being someone who's familiar with has been active in that part of the country. I mean, the part of the state, you know. He moved into the district when he decided to run, the perception is that, like, he just kind of picked a seat he wanted to run for, that it wasn't something that he – well, we know it wasn't his first choice. Um, and so I think that's also working against him in the 10th District. And, and those aren't things that – Jake. those aren't questions Jake Evans has to answer. Um, just a couple points about <clears> – <throat> excuse me, both the 6th and the 10th before we move on. Um, one of them is that the uh, – the important question here, uh, Adrian, is whether the six, which had been uh, a Democratic district, um, Tamar already talked about that, is going to flip. It is now much more likely that the Republican will win the district. Whoever wins the runoff will face Bob Christian, who um, is an Army veteran uh, and uh, has a pretty good resume. But but the legislature really turned that into a Republican district. So, uh, um, Adrian, we have to keep that in mind as maybe an overriding issue in this whole campaign, a whole whole election. I think we do, because I think that um, the districts are definitely more solidly Republican. I mean, we've seen a lawsuit uh, over the new maps and, you know, have not had an opportunity to readjust some of those districts um, in addition it in advance of this particular primary, we'll see what happens uh, before November, before 2024. But I think it's likely that um, the district could turn Republican. 
Adam, you have a runoff down there on the Democratic side in the first congressional district, where, of course, the incumbent is Buddy Carter, um, a longtime uh, uh, elected official in in uh, in your part of the state, uh, also an election denier. Uh, he's uh, the Democrats have Joyce Griggs facing off against Wade Herring. Joyce Griggs is an uh, I think has career military, right? Um, tell us a little bit about Griggs and Wade Herring. Sure, I want to start with a clarification on that. Uh, sure. Buddy Carter's not an election denier. He he did come back a month and a half or so after the election and said that Joe Biden was the what did win the election. Uh, that said, Buddy did vote against certifying the election on January the 6th. Yeah. And okay. then Thank later you. called it on later call said on Twitter that it was it was something that was the the violence was perpetrated by a few people who got out of control. That was how he characterized uh, what happened there despite the fact he was in the house chamber when everything went down. But regardless, that's a clarification on Buddy. Now for this race Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, this race is interesting, and it's been interesting from the start because Wade Herring is a local attorney with no political experience that was so upset with what he saw on January the 6th that he wrote an op-ed that appeared in, in our paper basically calling on Buddy to resign, uh, worked with a group to put up some billboards that were very critical of Buddy's actions on January the 6th and then later decided to run. Uh, Wade Herring goes to church with Buddy Carter. Wade Herring and uh, you know they run in a lot of the same circles. So it's it's been pretty interesting uh, the last year. But what kind of got lost was the fact that he still had to figure out a way to win the Democratic primary, which brings us to where we are today. Joyce Griggs, as you said, was career military. Uh, before that, she was an attorney who lost her law license for uh, for some uh, shenanigans and has applied to get it reinstated twice, has twice been denied the opportunity to reinstate it. And so she went into the military, was involved in some intelligence operations there, rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel, uh, so very accomplished military career. This is her third run for Congress. She ran against Jack Kingston about 20 years ago and lost. She ran against Buddy Carter two years ago and lost. And Joyce Griggs uh, does not – she does not do a good job of raising money, but for whatever reason, she seems to be able to get votes. In the primary, she won all 15 counties. So she's uh, – for whatever reason, she connects with the Democratic voters in coastal Georgia, whereas Wade Herring does not. She had 48 percent of the vote. She missed winning outright by about 600 votes. So she goes to a runoff now with Wade Herring, who uh, Joyce Griggs has raised. There's some discrepancy, which I think GPB has, has pointed out as well. She's raised not very much money, a couple thousand dollars for her campaign. Wade Herring has raised over $500,000, all from individual donors. So the whole thought was if Wade Herring could get through uh, into the general election, that maybe he could attract the outside money and the Democratic Party money to make a run at Buddy. But it looks so like that a- might be an uphill battle. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next before we move on, is how is Buddy Cardi, Carter actually vulnerable? It's it's a pretty conservative seat. I mean, when you talk about Jack Kingston having held that seat for a long time, uh, Buddy right. Carter holding the seat, uh, d- voters in that district seem to prefer Republican, conservative Republicans. Absolutely. And that's kind of the interesting thing about this was until, until Buddy's actions around January 6th, uh, he was not vulnerable. And I'm still not convinced that he is vulnerable, even despite that. But after January 6th and some of his actions, there were a lot of the moderate, the, the more uh, the boardroom conservatives, the boardroom Republicans that expressed some some dismay with Buddy and which got Wade to run. So uh, we'll see. I think it's even if Wade Herring were to get through, it's going to be tough to knock off Buddy Carter. He beat Griggs with 58 percent of the vote two years ago. And getting that down, you know, eight, nine points is going to be a, a tough a tough chore for whoever's there. Okay, before we move on to the Democrats, the only last thing I'd point out in terms of these Republican runoffs is that the 10th district race, that that Vernon Jones race, Mike Collins race that we talked about, once again pits Donald Trump's endorsement of Vernon Jones, which is kind of half-hearted, I think it's fair to say, uh, opposed to uh, Mike Collins, who's won Brian Kemp's endorsement. So we once again see a face-off between uh, the governor and the former uh, president, Let, let's talk about the Democratic side, where uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, Tia, uh, took an unusual step. She has uh, jumped in and endorsed Democratic runoff candidates 
in three big races. Um, she's endorsed uh, Charlie Bailey um, against um, in the um, lieutenant governor's race. Uh, she has um, made an endorsement for labor commissioner William uh, Bodie, and um, she also I'm I'm leaving one out here uh, Sec- secretary secretary of state's race where she endorsed uh, B Win. Uh, Tia, that's a somewhat risky thing for a candidate to do in a primary to jump in to a, a, a runoff. Yeah, I think it's risky, but I also think Stacey Abrams is looking ahead to November. And she knows that the Democratic Party is stronger, the bigger of a coalition they can build. And one thing that can help build a coalition is having a strong ticket, having a ticket that, you know, attracts different people for different reasons. Um, You can consider her following the playbook of having Ossoff and Warnock to an extent run as a ticket in the January 2021 runoff. And when you dig down into the dynamics at that at the Senate runoffs, where and Greg Lucing does a great job of breaking this down in his book Flipped, but um, Ossoff's main goal in the runoff was turning out black voters, whereas Warnock's main goal in the runoff, partially because the just that the dynamics between him and Kelly Leffler and her being a woman and being able to talk about the historic nature. Warnock's main goal was making sure that people did not believe he was a radical, saw him as a pastorly figure, and felt that he was someone who could reach the middle. But when you put those together, you've got Warnock working very hard to reach the middle, convince voters in the middle that they can support a Democratic candidate, while Ossoff is working overtime to turn out black voters. Well, they each benefited from the other. And you could see those dynamics in theory if there is a diverse Democratic ticket. Now, it becomes harder, for example, if because we have a lot of uh, black candidates um, on the Democratic ticket um, in these runoffs. And there is concern. We're just going to address the race, race elephant in the room that if the Democrats ticket is mostly black candidates, that could turn off some white voters who just aren't inclined to. You know, they might uh, they might be more accepting if some of the candidates were more diverse. And so all these things are at play as Democrats think what can help us win in November. Yeah, I think there are many reasons why Stacey Abrams, Adrian, uh, decided to endorse Charlie Bailey over Kwanzaa Hall. But certainly, as Tia uh, describes it, um, uh, a Charlie Bailey uh, gives the uh, Democratic ticket a little more racial uh, diversity uh, moving forward, Adrian. You're on mute, Adrian. I'm so sorry. I think it definitely provides some racial diversity um, in a state that, you know, is sensitive about race and that Stacey is looking forward to November to have a slate that's going to create um the kind of energy that's going to drive people to the polls in November. I think that in the 2018 race against Kemp, um, you know, Kemp was cast differently, right? He was the voter suppressing governor. Um, She was building out a new coalition of Democratic voters, additional black voters, whereas now she's been cast as black. Kemp has shifted to being sort of a upholder of electoral fairness and success, right? And so this changes the dynamic under which Um, Abrams is going to have to motivate Democratic voters to come out uh, to seal this deal if she's able to do it. And remember that also, you know, this is a year where Republicans are going to run heavily on crime, um, you know, and and talk about violent crime in cities just like Atlanta. And so Charlie Bailey is able to help inoculate that a little bit because he's a former Fulton County prosecutor. So he's going to be able to really kind of talk about crime, show that Democrats aren't soft on this issue in a way that Republicans are going to frame it. So that certainly helps. Remember that Charlie Bailey also was initially going to run for attorney general, the position that he almost won four years ago against Chris Carr. Party leaders convinced him to get out of that race in order to clear the field for Jim Jordan and so and and instead to go to the LG's race. So perhaps there's also a little bit of like, you know, backing him up, you know, as kind of a thank you for getting out of that race in order to, to clear the way. 
Um, it'll be very interesting to see. I, I'm very closely watching the Secretary of State's uh, race to see if B. Wynn is also able to, um, you know, to, to make it out of this. Um, she, of course, is, is, has a growing national profile. She recently won a Rising Star Award from Emily's List. Um, and so it'll, it'll be curious to see if she can um, make it out. She, of course, would be the only Asian-American candidate on the ticket. Um, but she's running against a former state rep, D. Dawkins Hagler, um, who had a really strong showing in the primary, um, has really centered her appeal on black voters and is not, you know, is pretty well known in her own right. So I'll be watching that as well. You know, Adam, uh, before we move on, and we're going to have to get to a break in a second here, um, the, the potential for an extraordinary low turnout in early voting already shows us that there's not a whole lot of interest in this runoff. Uh, is in fact giving some political figures, both here in Georgia and in other states as well, uh, questioning, they're, they're beginning to question whether runoffs are really as essential as for so many decades we've thought they've been in Georgia. There was a time when runoff elections were used to suppress uh, the potential for African-American candidates to win elections. That's not the case anymore to, to a large extent. But the question is, is the runoff system really still a good idea or should the state be thinking about going to rank choice voting i'm gonna hedge my bet and say it depends on what you're talking about <laughs> right i mean two years ago we saw a senate runoff that was incredibly good turnout so if the stakes are high enough yeah turnout's the right way to go but i think in general the whole idea of ranked choice voting makes a heck of a lot of sense because the state is spending a tremendous amount of money today in the last couple of weeks to run these elections that uh, there's not much. I, I talked to our political reporter this morning, and he went to his he went to his precinct at 8:15, so an hour and 15 minutes after the polls opened, and he said he was the 15th voter in an hour and 15 minutes. He said when he went for the primary and got in line at seven o'clock, he was the 15th person standing in line. So if that's any kind of and he, and he lives in a very Democratic heavy precinct, so if you if you went down the street from my house. Uh, to the precinct that is much more Republican. I bet you there probably hasn't been 15 people yet, and it's 930 in the morning. So, yeah, turnout for this one is going to be bad, but I don't think that that's – the question is, the right question is, was 2020 the exception to the rule? Yes, yes, yes. Really an excellent question. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. Polls are open across the state of Georgia, and they will be till 7 o'clock tonight. I personally – I, I don't mean to get on my uh, high horse here, but to me, the notion of voting is uh, not a right. It's a responsibility, and I hope you agree. And if you haven't voted, uh, go out and do it. I'm going to do it right after the show today. Uh, we'll be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're... We're back with uh, Adam Van Brimmer, uh, Adrian Jones, Tamar Hellerman, and Tia Mitchell for this uh, election day, runoff election day edition of Political Rewind. Uh, I, we didn't mention, I'll just mention it now because we talked about it for some time yesterday. Second congressional district uh, where Sanford Bishop's been the incumbent for basically three decades uh, has a Republican runoff too, Jeremy Hunt against Chris West. Jeremy Hunt won that uh, primary by a pretty significant margin, but we'll Watch to see who is going to end up facing off against Sanford Bishop in a district that has also had redrawn lines that make it at least a target of opportunity uh, for Republicans. All right, that said, uh, let's talk about the important role that Georgia has not only already played tomorrow, but is going to play in such a major way today uh, when Brad Raffensperger, his chief lieutenant, Gabe Sterling, and Wandrea Moss, who I'd like to start this conversation with, because she hasn't gotten, obviously, the attention that the Secretary of State uh, Office has in all of this. But Wandrea Moss 
was the Fulton County election worker who was captured in a video uh, lifting up a big suitcase that Rudolph Giuliani and other Trump allies called the smoking gun. There was proof in the way she handled this that she, in fact, was putting fake ballots into the system for Joe Biden. Uh, she ended up having to go into hiding. Her life was threatened on at least a number of occasions. And uh, before we talk about her, she won a Profile and Courage Award, the JFK Profiles and Courage Award, for her actions. And really, as a representative of election workers, I think it's safe to say. Let's just listen to a little bit of what Wandrea Moss said when she won that award up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I want to give a special thank you to all the anonymous election workers out there, the ones that are doing the heavy lifting our democracy depends on, far from the spotlights. Tonight, I represent all of them, all of those hardworking people with incredible courage to do the job and do it right. So, um, Tamar, again, I think, as I said at the start of the show, one of the things that's important about this testimony is it um, really puts a human face on people who were victimized by the fake conspiracy theory. Absolutely. And you mentioned how she got death threats. You know, she had to go into hiding. Her and her um, her mother, Ruby Freeman, you know, had to change their appearance because they were getting harassed so much. Ruby Freeman, actually, Kanye West publicist, showed up at her house in Cobb County and basically threatened her and told her she was in deep trouble, that, that she would help her, but only if she confessed to wrongdoing, like, you know, these kind of anonymous election workers just doing their jobs, upholding democracy and being thrown into the spotlight for it. Uh, Rudy Giuliani ended up showing kind of a, a doctored version of that video of, of uh, Shea Moss and her mom handling those ballots at State Farm Arena during uh, his testimony in front of lawmakers. Um, as, he, as you mentioned, Bill, he called it the smoking gun. He leveled what I saw as a kind of racist attack, talking about how it looked like they were passing out dope. Um, you know, handling these ballots. Uh, but, you know, state and, and federal investigators, as B.J. Pack testified at last week's hearing, said that they looked into this video and called, you know, found that they were doing nothing wrong. They were just following procedures. The suitcases were the actual ballot handling receptacles that you were supposed to use. So I think her testimony will be really powerful in showing kind of how these, these folks who, who volunteered to uphold democracy, got got stuck in the spotlight and the negative consequences that came with it. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that is likely to be pointed out, particularly when it comes to Mrs. Moss's case, is not only did she kind of decry the treatment of rank-and-file election workers, which is we know that in just about all 50 states, we saw that at the very local level, that people who don't make a lot of money, if if they're making any money at all, were just treated really poorly by people who falsely accused them of election fraud. But Miss Moss and her mom, they sued. They went after some of these conservative news networks and individuals. And we know that some of the stuff has already been settled. Like they, they got a payday in um, OAN, for example, put up a retraction. So um, it shows how... In some of the ways, I, Dominion is another good example of that. Initially, when prosecutors and elected officials per, were perhaps more reluctant to go against former President Trump and, and, and his allies for their election lies, you had Dominion, you had these election workers who said, we're going to sue because we want to hold someone accountable for the misinformation that was spread after the election. You know, Adrian, her case is an example of just how ruthless the perpetrators of the election lie theory were in some cases in going after individuals, um, people who, as, as everybody's already said, really, were doing their jobs on election day. And as, as uh, Ms. Moss said, you know, these are usually unsung people who just work in uh, quiet. But the, the campaigns were ruthless in many ways. I mean, I think this is an example of just watching the big lie go to attack individuals um, who are, I think, are the weakest. You know, then we're moving to the state level. Then we're moving to the January 6th level. Um, and, you know, I hope 
it is definitely the case that uh, this testimony today will be um, persuasive. At the same time, I think that the hearings have really focused on Republican witnesses uh, because, um, you know, this <laughs> they are not necessarily to some degree the demographic who the base might not want running the elections or might not care um, is being injured as a result of uh, what happened in 2020. Um, I think the more, I think that they have more leverage talking to Raffensperger, talking to Sterling. Um, I thought Carolyn Edwards obviously the other day was excellent um, because the point is to, to interrupt this listening that, that the Republican base has been doing over the last number of years um, really strongly for the last couple, but I mean, I, in thinking about the former president over time, you know, he really sowed the seeds of this at the very, very beginning of his presidency. Adam, jump in. Yeah, these these hearings have been remarkable, in my opinion. I, I'm looking forward to the ones that are ahead. I, I do wonder who is tuned in and who is tuned out. Because when I look at when I look at the the big lie folks who have repeatedly been tasked with proving, okay, give us something substantial that can be collaborated of why you believe this way, they can't find it. In these hearings, we are seeing evidence that is being collaborated that basically disproves that that there was election fraud, and also that speaks to the fact that the that the politician that they hold up as uh, the savior of America was trying to tear America down. And it just really is disturbing to me. And I, I think probably all of us on, on this call may have friends and family members who, who buy into this whole idea of election fraud and the big lie. And they don't think that, that Trump is in any way culpable for what happened at the Capitol on January the 6th. I just at this point it's 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 gone past willful ignorance and gone to something else, and that is what truly um, troubles me as I look ahead to to 2024 and I look ahead to this fall is we're going to have to come we're going to we're grappling with this problem and it's not going away and I don't unfortunately I don't think these hearings are going to uh, move the needle sufficiently to solve this issue. You know, Adam, uh, let me stick with you for just a second and then get everybody else in on this. Um, for those of us who are old enough to have been paying attention to the Watergate hearing so many years ago, um, when John Dean testified, it was a bombshell. Uh, he, he blew the cover on, on the Nixon White House completely. Uh, it turned the corner. It ultimately, that and the Supreme Court ruling that uh, uh, called for Nixon to release the tapes uh, were the deciding factors in uh, in the country turning against Richard Nixon. Brad Raffensperger today has some of the most compelling testimony about President Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the election. But it's not a bombshell. We've known about it for a long time now. And now the, the committee has done a really, I think, excellent job weaving the stories together in such a way that they, they've shown us the big picture through taking very specific examples of what happened and tying them into other elements of what's happened. But the question is going to be, what will the impact of Raffensperger be today, Adam, and how will the committee take advantage of it, given that it's a story the whole country already knows? Yeah, I, I think it probably goes back to my reaction when I heard Bill Barr, right? It was Bill Barr didn't tell us anything we didn't already know, but, but he said it in such a way that really resonated because you're like, here's, I mean, here's, Here's, here was I, – I hate to say this, but here was one of Trump's henchmen basically saying that, that Trump's claims were BS. He said that in front of the committee, and it didn't seem to uh, – it didn't seem to, to get as much notice as I would have thought. So I, I'm with you. I think that with Raffensperger and Sterling today, there's going to be more of this type thing, but again, it's going to be reinforcing. I think the biggest bombshells have probably been the stuff around Mike Pence last week. Um, and how Trump handled that. But again, I think the positions are staked out and it's going to be hard to move anybody uh, in any way, even with even with this very compelling evidence. I, I completely agree. I mean, people ran on the Capitol and um, 
on January 6th when I'm watching this happen, right? This is majority white people running on the Capitol. I consistently have to remember that if that had been majority black people running on the Capitol, we would have seen a much different scene on the Capitol steps, number one. And number two, we would not be having this conversation about whether people are going to believe a thing that we just saw that we all were able to observe and participate um, in. Um, you know, this. I, I think Fox News is airing the hearings now, but, you know, complete denial, right? Um, inculcating an, an entire group of people to not even pay attention to something that we know was incredibly egregious. I, it just, it confounds reality. And I, we are so far along that I'm just not sure that um, this puts the president in a different position here. And I'm also interested in seeing, you know, how it impacts what Fannie Willis is doing. Um, because even if symbolically all she gets to do is indict him and nothing comes of it, that's actually going to be a step forward versus, you know, nothing at all. Tia? I was just going to say, you know, we've all touched on it, but the times are very different compared to even Watergate 50 years ago. The political climate is so much more polarized and partisan. Um, I was, I got the privilege of hearing from Woodward and Bernstein on Friday, and they even talked about it. Like when Watergate blew up, the there were Senate hearings, and there were Republicans who clearly communicated to Nixon at the time, you're going to have to go or we're going to impeach you. And there was no, you know, circling the wagons and coming up with, you know, distracting narratives to to not talk about what their the, the president who's in their party was doing. And And I feel like in modern day, Watergate would have played out so much differently because the instinct now is to instead of facing what the person in your own party is doing, and this is more of a symptom on the Republican side, but instead of facing what your own party is doing to say, well, look at, look what they're doing in their work. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's, it's a theme that my colleague Bill Rankin and I are starting to explore in our podcast breakdown um, about the, the, Fonnie Willis investigation, and we're kind of looking back at Watergate and exactly what Tia was saying. You know, there were many Republicans who abandoned Richard Nixon because what they saw was so damning. And I think now we're just so entrenched and so divided. We can't even agree on like a common set of facts about what happened. You know, we're all in our little media echo chambers on cable news and on social media that it becomes impossible to communicate anything, to get anything to cut through the noise on both sides. And so I agree. I think it's just such a, a fundamentally different time now. And yeah. Okay. We got to get to the final break of the show, by the way, on the way there, for those of you who like me, remember Watergate, I do want to point out the other mouth dropping moment was when a special assistant to the president, Alexander Butterfield in the open hearings suddenly said, Oh, by the way, Richard Nixon has been taping all of the conversations he's had in the Oval Office throughout his tenure, and that was the moment that led to the Supreme Court ruling that forced the release of those uh, those smoking gun tapes. Uh, nothing like that happening in Washington this week. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Tomorrow is Political Rewind Newsletter Day. We'll deliver our weekly uh, newsletter to your email inbox later tomorrow afternoon. Uh, This is the time to be paying attention to politics. So if you want to subscribe, do it at gpb.org slash newsletters. Uh, We'd love to have you join us. Tomorrow, there's there's something else that we're not going to get time to unpack with all the detail it deserves today. But we'll be hearing about it, I think, later today. We've talked about, and we've known for quite some time now, about the slate of fake electors led by GOP party chairman David Schaefer. But we've never really understood the context. It was never an ad hoc group. There was always something that motivated them to meet at the state capitol and put this group together. But it wasn't until the last hearing 
that we found out just how uh, complicated that was, how big a part that was of John Eastman, the Trump lawyer's plot to get Mike Pence to uh, uh, recognize the fake slate of electors rather than the legitimate electors. Once again, Georgia becomes crucial as one of the seven states which filed those phony and possibly criminal uh, uh, elector slates. Absolutely. We saw a bombshell email come out, I believe it was out of the Justice Department a couple weeks ago, um, that showed that, uh, you know, these Republican electors in Georgia were being told as a matter of policy to keep what they were doing secret. Um, to not only lie to the media, but also to security guards at the Capitol about what they were up to, because it, it's very important that they were to meet at the Capitol in order to approve this slate of electors. And that's something that could really help the Justice Department at the end of the day if they want to pursue this, as well as Fulton D.A. Fonnie Willis, if she wants to pursue them in terms of laying out um, mens rea, criminal intent, which is, uh, you know, critical to, to kind of charge them on anything in state law. So that's a huge bombshell. You know, from reporting, you know, we've seen in recent weeks from national publications that Rudy Giuliani was also intimately involved talking to a lot of these state uh, Republican electors. But based on some comments I've been seeing from January 6th committee members to uh, to the national press in recent days, it looks like they're also going to try and draw a direct line to Donald Trump in this effort as well mm-hmm. as part of these hearings. So that's something I'm going to be watching closely for today and in the weeks ahead. Yeah, Tia, we do expect more testimony on the fake electors to, or whether, yeah, some information to be released, whether it's through testimony or just a documentation that the committee has done. Right, because what the committee has said is they don't just want to talk about the pressure campaign and these schemes that we know wouldn't have been legal, but the committee has said they are going to show that President Trump was involved in pushing these schemes and that he was warned ahead of time that they they weren't good ideas. And so we're wondering if there will be testimony or tapes or something that, you know, shows examples of how President Trump was involved. Because that part, you know, up right now, we consider the fake electors, like, that's a John Eastman thing. And, like, yeah, John Eastman was a Trump attorney, and he was someone who was in Trump's ear saying, here's how we can overturn the election. You know, we consider him kind of, him and Rudy Giuliani were out there acting you know, with Trump's blessing, but not necessarily with Trump involved. And I wonder if that narrative could shift um, depending on what the committee reveals. Um, Adam, meanwhile, and Tamar Hellerman, we can credit with having really gotten a lot of insights for us about what's happening with Fonnie Willis's uh, special grand jury. And Adam, one of the things um, and we'll get tomorrow in on this in a minute. Uh, we know as of today, Chris Carr, the attorney general, is going to testify. Chris Carr never was in uh, Donald Trump's sights quite the way that Brian uh, Kemp and Brad Raffensperger uh, were. Nevertheless, uh, Carr refused to go along with the scheme to overturn uh, the election. And he didn't even he, he rejected the Texas lawsuit, that awful lawsuit, which tried to step into Georgia's business and overturn the uh, election here as well. So Carr testifies today, um, and uh, we're not going to hear a lot about it, Adam, but the fact he's going in there is important. Yes, and you have to assume that he was being consulted by Raffensperger and Kemp and, and all this all along the way. He had to have been intimately involved just because of his position as uh, having to defend the state in any kind of in any kind of um, legal proceedings. So, yeah, it'll be uh, it's interesting that he's going in and, and it's another voice. And it'll be interesting if we do learn at some point exactly what he what he says and, and what kind of information he provides. Tamar, he also got a phone call from Donald Trump, we should point out. Yeah, that was in December 2020. And at the time, Texas had sued Georgia at the Supreme <laughs> Court trying to overturn election results in Georgia and other swing states. Chris Carr called it constitutionally deficient uh, for, for many reasons. And Trump basically talked to him to make sure that that Carr, who at the time was leading the Republican Attorneys General Association, wasn't rallying other AGs to kind of join 
his side of all of it. And Carr said, no, that's not what I'm doing. I was just answering their questions. So he's a, you know, Chris Carr's a bit more of a kind of peripheral player in all of this. The person we're going to be watching to see if they come in and if they're subpoenaed is Brian Kemp in the weeks ahead. He, of course, received many phone calls from Donald Trump after the election. And I will be very curious to see if and when D.A. Willis does call him in. Um, we can only assume, Tamar, that uh, the special grand jury watching or, or that, the, that the prosecutors at the special grand jury watching the January 6th hearings are probably uh, getting lots of uh, information that could be used as ammunition in the hearings, right? Absolutely. As I mentioned, criminal intent, extremely important for laying out any sort of state charge. And all of this will help them immensely, especially when it comes to laying out the state of mind of Trump and all of his advisors. The January 6th committee has access to records that would have been very hard for them locally to get. Tamar Hellerman gets the last word in today's show. Tia Mitchell, you've been in the room for some of the uh, hearings, which is really exciting. I, I'm just uh, thrilled you've gotten to Are you going to be able to be there today? Yes, I have not missed a hearing yet. And um, I'm planning on going to the hearing today. Again, there's been just so many Georgia connections that, yeah. you know, it's not just like I'm going because it's cool. I feel like we need no, to no, be no. there because right. there are Georgia, <laughs> That's so much Georgia news is happening. I, I, I got to. That's very exciting. Good for you. We're glad we have a Georgia a journalist in the room. So Tia Mitchell, Adrian Jones, Adam Van Brimmer, Tamar Hallerman. Terrific conversation today on a very important day in politics. Go vote if you hadn't had, haven't had a chance to. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody. <laughs>